0: Welcome to Right's Up Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Allman. This episode is part of a special series funded by the British Academy on human rights and the sustainable development goals. In this episode, I'm talking to Isabel Cristina Jaramillo Sierra, a human rights lawyer and professor in Colombia who works on feminist legal reform. In September 2015, the UN adopted a set of goals to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure prosperity for all people. These are the UN Sustainable Development Goals, to be realized by 2030. There have been a number of global development targets set over the years, but the Sustainable Development Goals make an overt commitment to human rights for the first time. They explicitly aim to bring human rights and economic development into conversation with one another. If you missed the first episode in this series with Olivier de I recommend giving it a listen. It provides a nice overview of the Sustainable Development Goals and how human rights might help achieve them. But a lot of questions loom around how human rights can meaningfully contribute to sustainable development. That's the focus of this series, and we're continuing the discussion in this episode. There are 17 Sustainable Development Goals, each with their own targets. Goal number five is to achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. Gender equality is a human right, and it's also recognized as an essential requirement for sustainable development. Many of the targets under goal five focus on women's involvement in the economy. While gender equality stands alone as a goal, it also cuts across many of the other sustainable development goals. This raises some questions about whether gender equality can ever be realized on its own, in its own right, or whether it has to be realized in context. Inclusion and empowerment of women and girls must take place at every level and in every development target. Here to discuss some of the gender issues at play in development agendas is Isabel Cristina Jaramillo Sierra, a professor of human rights law at La Universidad de los Andes in Colombia and an expert on feminist legal theory. Isabel, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kira. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, Isabel, you've said before that you're interested in how the theoretical frameworks behind human rights law can actually affect the everyday lives of people. And I hear that and I think, you must be working in a particularly critical space for human rights law. You've got one foot in the theory, the jurisprudence, and one foot in the practice. This must be one of the challenges in integrating a human rights approach to the sustainable development goals, balancing the abstract with the concrete from both a human rights perspective and in terms of development.
1: Yes, I would say that precisely... uh, using human rights in the field of sustainable development uh, is a way of uh, making human rights uh, bear on very concrete questions. Uh, and so I think that, it, yeah, that it's, uh, as you mentioned, it's a really crucial moment for human rights law uh, to be considered as, as relevant for this decision. This just, it really transforms, makes it in many ways more powerful than ever before.
0: So how do we ensure that it's not just that technocrats and bureaucrats are talking in the language of human rights, but that they walk the walk as well as talk the talk?
1: It takes some time to develop the conceptual tools to think of this match of uh, languages, paradigms, etc. So one should not be too, too quick in judging the political will of uh, bureaucrats and technocrats to introduce this new language and the demands that it brings uh, into the into the field, but uh, so it will take some time to think how exactly are we going to do it. But at the local level, what we've seen is that um, NGOs, civil society organizations, and the people who've been doing the work on human rights and development have lots of tools available uh to be you know cannibalized by by others eh, and to move the conversation forward so in the field that i know best that of feminists and feminist mobilization it's a feminists have been working for a long time uh, not only in contesting the state but also in producing ways in which state could uh, advance some of the feminist goals. And so I think that a rich conversation between these uh, experts in civil society experts and uh, the bureaucrats and technocrats of the state or government uh, could be one way of uh, moving forward a lot faster than uh, we could if we don't have those conversations. Uh, so that's one, I think, one part. The other is, you know, to really integrate the experts who have been developing ideas in other, like in, hu- just in human rights, to bring them into development and expert some of those development experts into human rights. So have a lot more of those conversations across fields so that we have the conceptual tools to really understand what are the demands of this new framework uh, and how we will materialize them on, on, in the ground. Now, I think that, that uh, NGOs, eh, eh, I mean, civil societies and some states, some governments, eh, will also be uh, crucial in in really uh, monitoring, and supervising, that everyone takes uh, human rights seriously when talking about sustainable development. It still happens in conversations that people would say, uh, well, you know, human rights will do that later. And, and, and so it is only the, like the constant and uh, the persistent uh, invocation of uh, human rights as a duty and not not an, an option or a choice but actually a duty that will uh, perhaps uh, open up the space for the conceptual tools to come in and help to elaborate uh, the framework
0: what would be an example perhaps from Latin America of an area where development goals get out of sync with human rights law
1: so it's it's interesting that, that it's not that easy to answer the question exactly in the way in which we proposed it because it's a very good question. So let me see if this if this resonates. So an internal debate regarding uh, development in many Latin American countries concerns uh, uh, employment, for example, how much uh, uh, to, to increase minimum wages, to keep a regulation of minimum wages or not, etc. One could see that as, you know, just a question or a a big issue about development. Uh, Now, it seems isolated and not in violation of any human right, right? Then what I've seen happen is that one could, in the midst of that discussion, say, but wait, if we're talking minimum wages, for example, why don't we also talk about... um, equal pay for equal work, right? So we have a legislation which has not been implemented, right? So why don't we, you know, make sure that these two conversations work together? And uh, the answer would be, you know, equality. It's sure, it's important. But first we have to, you know... uh, Increase our revenues as a country, or uh, you know, make the economy grow, and and then we'll see what we do about equality. So, and that would seem to be only a question of prioritization, right? It's like we'll do this first, and we'll do that second. But I I think that it it shows how as how. Putting it as a question of prioritization actually is hiding the fact that you don't want to take human rights into consideration. You just want to think that the only issue you have to solve is how much you pay workers, right? And you don't want to solve the issue of whether workers are paid the same, you know, regardless of their gender, their race, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So... We see it as part of the argument of development. And it would seem uh, that the pressure that being in a country in the global south puts on this debate is that they will tell you, you know, it's so urgent to grow that really you cannot be putting this issue in the agenda. While one could imagine that being in other scenarios in the global north, Uh, at least they don't have at hand the notion that it's so urgent, right? That people are dying of hunger. And so it's so urgent is what you get in the South. On the one hand, this argument is also used in the global North internally, domestically, right? So we know how equality has been um, postponed in so many developed countries. But then on the other hand, we know that the question of urgency will not be solved if you don't solve these other things at the same time, right? That more equality brings more growth. I mean, it's not true that less equality brings more growth.
0: So let's talk a little more about gender and development gender cuts across a lot of the other human rights, and it stands alone as a sustainable development goal, gender equality and women's empowerment. But it's implicated, obviously, in all the other goals. So in your opinion, what's the power of having a standalone gender-based goal?
1: Yes, I think that's a very good question.
0: And, uh, well, that I'm
1: sure was a choice. I haven't read how that happened. I mean, I haven't read about the political process that led uh, to that decision. One could, on the one hand, as you as you have insinuated, criticize this uh, move on the part of those who drafted the, the goals, saying, you know, that actually gender should be mainstream throughout all the sustainable goals, and it shouldn't be a goal standing on its own. Um, On the other hand, we've had our experience with mainstreaming in general around the world hasn't been one of a clear success, right? Mainstreaming, we have learned, uh, demands lots and lots of resources. And not only economical resources materialized in people, you know, uh, but also um, uh, knowledge, and so gender mainstreaming, uh, I think, in many ways, in many places, etc., failed because it kind of thought that gender expertise or gender knowledge would be easy. You know, we all know equality, so we will produce it. It seems to be like a big achievement to mainstream. Uh, but then it's so costly to really uh, make it produce it. It's, its effects that uh, I, I really personally think at this moment it might be better to have a specific goal in which we can really put all our energy and all our knowledge and from there irradiate to other places than to be, I would say, more ambitious and be everywhere institutionally and then just fail because we were not able to know or think about uh, gender in some areas. Again, I don't know how this how this happened. You know, it could have been something that uh, civil society organizations and experts asked for. It could have been just that this is just a small piece of uh, institutionality that we got. Uh, but I will hope that from there we
0: can do do lots of things. So every region, every country has to tackle these goals differently. They're going to have different challenges and different priorities in a certain sense. Are there unique gender-based challenges in realizing the sustainable development goals in Latin America?
1: So Latin America could be thought of the issue of exceptionality or distinctiveness is always a matter of, you know, perspective. But I would, uh, and I'm sure I could be contested, I mean, any answer I give to this question, I'm sure I could be challenged on how distinctive Latin America is to the one respect or the other. But I would say that Latin America as a region, I think, that could be could be seen as having two traits that make this uh, thinking of development and human rights uh hand by hand, uh, as very interesting, right? So, so on the one hand, we have a history of huge inequalities and inequalities that get, uh, you know, that deeper and deeper as time passes. So we have some of the countries with the largest inequalities in the world, right? I think Haiti is one of them, Colombia is another one of them, Brazil and Mexico have been huge in, in terms of the, the inequality uh, that they that they have produced inside them. And on the other hand, we've had uh, a tradition of human rights that is of the production and thinking of human rights, but at this which comes from our Catholic tradition and Spanish colonialism, right? So, That is part of our history at the same time as it is part of our history, blatant disregard for human rights during dictatorships, for example. right? so we have this, uh, I would say, as a region, we have these contradictions uh, which live side by side.
0: One development issue I know you've worked on before in the context of Latin America is cash transfers. This financial incentive program implicates gender in some interesting ways. So before we get into that, uh, could you just explain what a cash transfer is for our listeners who may not be familiar with the concept?
1: So a cash transfer is an amount of money, cash, that is distributed by the state to individual beneficiaries. So in the model that is more prevalent in Latin America, it would be they give the money to an individual as representative of a family uh, or a group of persons. Uh, so it's, a, it's an amount of money that is given uh, to an individual. Now, most cash transfer in, by the state with the hope that the individual will use it in the best way possible according to its own or her own circumstances to achieve some of the uh, welfare that states are supposed to guarantee let's say i don't know if that's clear enough but so and the cash transfers may be conditioned or not conditioned right so you might give this cash transfer just to everyone who has uh, a child for example this was the case for some time in argentina or it could be conditioned i i mean it could be universal and unconditioned you just give it to the women because they had children or you could have it targeted and conditioned which is the case of most of these transfers in Latin America. Uh, targeted means that you choose only a group of people that need these resources the most, right? Uh, in most countries in Latin America, most cash transfers have been for uh, families with dependent children. Uh, and families with dependent children, which are in extreme poverty, end up being female headed households or you can condition it which means that you have to do something in exchange for the resources that you're receiving or you have to prove somehow you're doing something that the state hopes that you'll be doing and so this is the case also of most uh, cash transfers in Latin America in which you know the, the cat is not only a cash transfer but it's also targeted so you have to prove that you're in this category of people who need the money the most and then again you have to Uh, And there's a condition you have to show that you've done something uh, in order to deserve uh, the renewal or the continuation.
0: Okay, so how is gender implicated in this system? Now, cash transfers
1: uh, have been interesting because uh, on the one hand, they have been cash transfers were proposed since the mid 90s. Uh, in several countries in Latin America as uh, strong alternatives to the state provision of services and goods. And it's not that our countries had very strong welfare states or any of the sort, uh, but as alternatives of development, right, cash transfers re- replaced the possibility in our imaginations or our political future of having states that would provide for these goods and services so we've studied cash transfers and what has been interesting in many countries in the region is that these uh transfers i mean they have three characteristics one that they are channeled to women as heads of family so the notion is that female-headed households are uh, connected to the, to the fact that this is also the region with more children born out of wedlock. Uh, so we have this uh, cash transfers being directed to women because the poorest of the poor are actually uh, women who have children and have no uh, partner or husband. And, and so that was one particularity would immediately flag the gender issue, right? So what is going to happen? And some technocrats and bureaucrats would say, well, this is empowerment for women, uh, because now it is the women who are getting the money. But but on the other hand, what we've seen is that the amounts that are being distributed are very, very little. And in 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 exchange for this uh, amount of money that women receive, they have to do a lot of work. I mean, not only the care work that women usually have to do with regards to their family, but now new bureaucratic work because uh, in many cases, at least in the Colombian case, it's that way. Cash transfers are conditioned on women proving that they are providing certain, uh, or that they're doing certain things for their children. One could say, well, that's a great idea, but actually uh, in their contexts, doing these things for their children, uh, I mean, or moreover, proving that they're doing these things for their children, such as getting vaccines or uh, taking them to the doctor, etc., proving not, I'm not saying doing it, but actually having to prove to a bureaucrat that they're doing it is, Becoming a, a a work in and of itself, and work, I mean the amount these cash transfers in in Colombia, for example, are not larger than fifty dollars a month. That's five zero, which will not take, according to Colombian calculations, even one individual out of poverty. Here they're expecting that. Uh, women will use this money for their children and they would produce results that show that they're actually out of poverty already. So the burden on women is huge. We find that the amount of work that they have to do in exchange for this money and the possibilities that this money opens up for them, I mean, the work is so much, the possibilities are so little, that actually... Uh, it might be deepening gender inequality instead of helping
0: us resolve it. This brings up an important point, I think, uh, that women are often leveraged as targets and tools in development agendas. I think we see this in the example that you've just described with cash transfers. Women become powerful narrative devices and development stories. Do you think this is helpful or hurtful in the long run? So is it going to get us closer to gender equality or is it maybe holding us back?
1: Yeah, so so I think that's this. This is a very interesting moment because the, so for a long time feminists uh, in development, in the field of development, were arguing that technocrats and bureaucrats thinking about development were just not paying attention to women, right? And that women were being left behind. Now we seem to be saying they're paying too much attention to women. So it seems that well, why do you put all the burden of development on women, right? And someone might say, well, but didn't weren't you complaining because we were not giving anything to women? Now we're giving them everything. So what's you know, we when we uh, argue that uh, women should not carry the burden of development, I think that in a way. we're also making the argument that, well, gender shouldn't matter. I mean, that we should move to a world in which gender doesn't matter. And if we keep saying that women, because they are women, will be better at handling resources, will be more responsible with cash, will take better care of children, well, we're actually sabotaging a. We're actually sabotaging the possibilities that women might have of getting out of these roles that they feel are oppressive. So so I, I I would say that it is not it's not a contradiction to say you're not paying attention, we're not paying enough attention to women, and on the other hand, say you're instrumentalizing them. Because what we're trying to say is that women as women. Are trapped in gender, and uh, this is producing all this inequality. And unless we uh, subvert these gender arrangements, uh, we, you know, women will not uh, have the equality they aspire to. And uh, and so, just giving the money to women, but emphasizing gender roles, will not. Produce equality because the the money is even more of a prison when it is given under the condition of being a woman and certain type of women that you know someone imagines to be better or more useful or anyway. So I think that there that's where we're at, right? That at some point we try to use the business case, to move the gender agenda along the way, right? So we tried to say, well, listen, you haven't paid enough attention. Women are such good workers. Women are such good mothers. Women are great at saving. Women are, you know, and we, we, we highlighted all these qualities of women, uh, which, you know, the data supported these claims, uh, but I think that at some points we didn't realize the trap that we might fall into by saying that it is because women are women that they uh, have these qualities and not because under the gender arrangements that we're in, women have developed survival strategies and, and therefore, you know, survival strategies are instrumental to that oppression. But for women, you know, to have to keep in this situation, I mean, to give women more things just to keep them in this situation will just not, uh, I mean, it's not what we want as women,
0: I would say. We've put a lot of emphasis on how human rights law can contribute to perhaps greater recognition of gender equality and sustainable development, but there's still work to be done recognizing women in the law, right? Just full stop. Do you have any concluding thoughts about where women stand in relation to law? We should never forget that constitutional revolutions expelled women intentionally,
1: right? So that in the 19th century, it wasn't that men forgot that women were around or that they forgot to give women the vote, right? It was actually that they didn't want women to be in. And some feminists have written on this, uh, Joan Landis, for example. So I think that this is one, when approaching human rights law, as women, we should never forget that uh, at some point we were not, we were thought of as the outside of human rights. And and so we should never forget the how that could linger in the, uh, legal field uh, and produce consequences so that when we embrace human rights with all its possibilities, uh, I think it, would, it, it is always uh, safe to, to, to remember that it's not always been a kind place for women and that if some women are very skeptic, They have plenty of reason for this skepticism and uh, that if women have worked hard to produce expertise so that we don't lose this battle again, we should take that expertise very seriously. Right, That we shouldn't minimize the the importance of the ideas being produced. Because sometimes uh, we embrace this success and that's, I think, very important, uh, but uh, you know, remembering how much it's cost us, uh, how much we have lost along the way, how much uh, the future could look more like the past. I think it's useful, you know, to to make us uh, work harder and uh, appreciate everything that we that we win. I mean, every battle, small or large, that we win.
0: Well, thank you so much, Isabel, for taking the time to talk with me on this podcast.
1: Great. Thank
0: you, Kira. It's been a pleasure, really. Right's Up Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. This is a special series on the sustainable development goals funded by the British Academy. It's produced by me, Kira Allman, and music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. Music